Well, if you're joining us on live line, we want to welcome you to Willow Park Church, our communities and our campuses, and we're really blessed that you're able to join us and be with us. We've been on a series called Ten, the Ten Commandments. And we've been looking at the importance and the centrality of the Ten Commandments in the Bible. And it's been already quite an eventful journey. We looked at about the exclusivity of only having God alone within our life and within who we are. Putting God first. Have no other gods. Nobody at all. Nothing in our lives and being willing to hand it all over to him. We're going to look at the second commandment. Of course, the first commandment and the second commandment can often seem incredibly close to each other. You know, but I've entitled this, of course, the second commandment, you've got to serve somebody. For those of you a little bit older, you'll probably know what that is a reference to, but I'll get to that later. When you think of other gods and idol worship, second commandment, you shall not have any other graven images, idols before God. You can sit there in the 21st century, in this wonderful moment in our life, on this glorious Thanksgiving weekend, and you can think, well, that is really only to do with the ancient world. Yet it's not just to do with the ancient world. We may talk a lot about agnostics and atheists, an atheistic, secularized society, but the truth is this, according to much research, 80% of people believe in something spiritual and something deeper and in some areas of their life are spiritual in some way. So though they say, I'm an agnostic, there can often be profound spiritual activity in their lives. Religion is alive and well in the modern 21st century. In fact, we're talking more about religion than ever before. The news is full of talk of religion. We know more about religion in the Middle East and the difference between Shia, Sunni, Kurds, Turks, Israel than we've ever known. Right at this moment. But more than that, we also know that in the modern world, there is endless talk about what we have coined the phrase New Age religion. Which is akin to kind of a spiritual shopping mall. You walk around and you think, "Mm, I fancy being a little bit peaceful today. I'll try these crystals. Or I'll do this, or I'll engage in some transcendental meditation. Or my room feels a little bit uncomfortable, my house isn't quite good. I'm going to bring in a little feng shui. I don't know if I said that right, I've never used it myself. But I'm going to do this. I believe it's the way you position your, not that I want to teach you this, the way that you position your room so you get the very best moments and the very best feeling and the best, I don't know, whatever, coming through it. You know, I've got four kids, one dog, and while Michelle was away, I got a cat. There is no such thing as peaceful friends, Ray, whatever you know, I said that's right. Sounds like something I order from my local Thai restaurant. Um, in my house. Yeah, the cat is quite an interesting thing. I've resisted a cat for 15 years. Michelle's in Africa, and what happens? I hear this meow. And I open my back door, and what's there? A kitten. Don't say, ah. 
No, I rebuke you. No, cats. And I go, it's, it's, it's red alert. I'm saying to all the kids, mum's away. Go to every house in a 15-mile radius and knock on the door and ask them if they've lost the cat. They did this and they came back saying, nobody's lost the cat, Dad. <laughs> Liars. And, <laughs> you know, there's no way I'm going to create calm and peace in our house with a, a dog and now a new cat. I'm allergic to a cat, so this has been interesting as well. And I still can't get rid of it. Anybody want a cat online anywhere in the world? Um, I think I'm doomed, though. Reincarnation, astrology, crystals, tarot cards, rebirthing. It is all offered today in the mall of activity mixed up to suit yourself religion in the world that we live in. Rejection of any sort of religion is basically this. I want to believe what I want. There is a preference for spiritual beliefs that are, seem to be undemanding. It seems that when you believe in these beliefs, you know, it's as you feel it. The real buzzword in new spirituality, of course, is tolerance. That's what, you know, is, it, it's all about tolerance. You choose to do what you want to do. I'll choose to do what I want to do. And there's no real truth. But if it works for you spiritually, then that is absolutely fine. The New Age commandment, commandment number one is this. Thou shalt not say, thou shalt not, is the commandment. In other words, there's no absolute truth. In other words, you can't say this. This subject cuts to the very heart of how we as Christians respond to a spiritualized world that deals with just tolerance and doesn't like absolutes and we're in a problem because God says you will have no other gods before me and no idols in your life. See, let me kick in right here and say it is entirely possible to start worshipping personal achievement technology, nature, art, science, or any other form of human wisdom and creativity. Letting these things become graven images in the heart and forgetting about our creator when everything in our life becomes filled with everything else. Of course, from a New Testament perspective, since Christ is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Colossians 1.15, and Hebrews 1.3. I love Hebrews 1.3. It says that Christ is the radiance of God. In 2 Corinthians, he is the image of the invisible God. He is genuinely Yahweh himself. So when we connect with Jesus, and this becomes incredibly important, we understand 
2 Corinthians says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You want to understand God? You want to understand the glory and the radiance of God? You want to know the image, the exact likeness of the character and the heart of God? Then Scripture Scripture teaches us it is Jesus Christ and look into the face of Jesus and you will understand the character of God. Isn't that beautiful? It's absolutely gorgeous. It helps me because to be honest, sometimes God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, the God that put the stars in the skies, the God who created all of the cosmos and supernovas and powerful air, black holes and the, the mystery of the universe can seem so difficult to kind of understand until I look into the face of Jesus. And the first commandment addresses who to worship. The second commandment addresses how to worship. It is about who we worship and how we worship. First, we should seek to worship God as Christians on his own terms. It's not about your terms, and that's hard. It's nothing like the New Age philosophies. It's not about what I can get from it. It's about God's terms. Second, we should understand that worshipping God day by day, moment by moment activity, it is an ongoing thing that covers all of our life. I believe this with all my heart, that when we worship God and we engage with God and we know God's presence, that my uh, adoration to him affects every corner and part of my life. So Exodus 24 and 6 says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Notice the language here. When you look at this, and I'll just keep the verse up. When you look at this verse, first of all, notice that it explains that do not make anything to worship. Don't make anything to worship. And do not worship anything you make. This is the very basis of what it's trying to communicate. But in this passage, it uses quite emotive and incredible words. In this passage, we have words that are personal and powerful. What, what words does, does the Lord use? Well, in this passage, he uses the words jealous. I am a jealous God. I am a jealous. He uses the word love. In fact, he uses the terminology steadfast love. These are not words that often we associate with God the heaven, God the Father of heaven and earth. It is something that is intimate and personal. It is something that if you start to worship graven images, in, in, um, it goes on in Deuteronomy. It talks about, in verse 15, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Haram, 
out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and, and make for yourself an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman. Look at verse 19. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun and the moon, the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed in bowing down to them and worshipping them. Again, in this passage, we have words... There in the first passage that deal with jealousy, deal with love. And here we have words that say, very simply, watch yourself. There is a danger of corruption. Do not become corrupt. Don't serve them. Don't worship these things, depending on what translation. So suddenly what we've got is a picture of God the Father, who is passionately in love and jealous with his people. He wants them to stay pure to him. He wants them not to be drawn away, because when they are drawn away, they become in danger of corrupting themselves and going the wrong direction, because they've taken their eyes off God. God. Now, this kind of creates a picture of quite an intimate God. I imagine I, when Michelle got back from Tanzania the other day. Great relief. I bragged about doing four loads of washing to you. Hallelujah. In a day. And she said, do you know how many loads I've done since I've got back in this 24 hours? I went, oh, I really hoped it was four. She said, 12. I said, "Ah, I love you. And, but you know, she come back in and she she said, hello, Phil. And I'm there and the lights are all turned down and I'm, um, I've got candles lit. What you been doing? Oh, you know. Feeling a bit lonely. So I, uh, you know, I had a girlfriend in grade 10. And I have an old picture of her, so I got her out. And I thought I'd listen to our favorite song by Barbara Streisand. And I know exactly what she would do. She'd say, are you bonkers? Are you raving mad? Are you a complete and utter... I don't know what word I can say at church, but you know what word may come out of your mouth if you came back and found your husband and your wife listening to music from their teenage years, staring at an old photograph of an ex-girlfriend in grade 10. What would you do to your husband, ladies? You'd take him to Garden Lake and you'd sink him in the lake. That's what you'd do. God is saying this. You watch yourself carefully because you're in danger of being corrupted. And when you allow idols, he says to them, into your life, you're in covenant relationship with me. And I get jealous when you step out and put other things first than me. 
Don't be lighting those candles. Don't be getting those grade 10 photographs out of those other ancient gods around and doing your thing. You need to look at me because don't serve them or worship them because you are called in your life to utterly and completely serve me. And it reminds me, and I guess it shows a little bit of my age, although I think it's quite cool, chic, of Bob Dylan's song, You've Got to Serve Somebody. Remember that? Great words. Great poet. Although Rolling Stone magazine voted it the second worst ever song by Bob Dylan. I wonder why. Because it's counterculture, isn't it? You know, we're all serving somebody. We're all looking at something. We're all serving the great poet himself did this. Now, John Lennon mocked this song. He hated this song. He wrote in his diary before he died, oh, it's so pathetic. You've got to serve somebody. And so what did John Lennon do? He wrote another song called You've Got to Serve Yourself. Now, these are two truths. You either have to serve somebody or you have to serve yourself. But what God really wants from us as believers is that we wouldn't serve somebody or something and we wouldn't serve ourselves, but we would serve the image of the living God, which is Christ Jesus. Don't have anything else before Jesus Christ. But Jesus is number one. What's the biblical context of all of this? Well, the events in Exodus itself constitute a divine war against the gods of Egypt and against idolatry from God himself. God hates this stuff. In fact, the very tone of the ancient world, Isaiah 57, 13, mocks the very nature of these gods that wind will blow them away. They are nothing. But when you trust in the living God, he is a refuge and an inheritance you will receive. Some of the harshest words spoken in the Old Testament was about idol worship. And the danger of succumbing to a kind of synchronistic thinking and a seductive power of idols in the lives of those who sought to follow God. This is interesting in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, even some of our great heroes would become synchronistic And would kind of worship the Yahweh God, the true God, the living God. But sometimes tucked away in their lives, they'd have some idols and little local gods tucked away. Say, surely not. Well, just look at the life of Jacob, first of all. Let's start with him. You know, he served the living God. But then when he ran away from his father-in-law, Leah and Rachel, what did they steal? They stole the household gods. And they packed up the little household gods. And so here is Jacob. You know, he's definitely disengaged with the living God. And he hasn't had his marvelous moment. But they go away. And and what does Laban do? He chases after them and says, where are my gods? 
You've even run off with all my children and you're hiding my gods. He comes into his daughter's tent and says, what are you doing? And she says, daddy, I can't get up. I'm, 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 it's that time. I can't. And, and there she's hiding the little gods in her tent because she wants to hold on to these little gods. Gideon, after all his victories and all that God did, and the glorious army of the Lord shrunk down to that magnificent force when he was given the gold and the earrings, he melted them down, made an ephod, and there it became a snare, and they worshipped that golden ephod, which seems ridiculous. Instead of worshipping God. And the scripture says that he became ensnared by this. Even David when he was escaping from Saul. And this is most interesting in 1 Samuel 19.13. Was running around the bedroom. His wife's there. Saul's coming quickly. Jump out the window. So he jumps out the window. And what does his wife Micah do? She grabs an idol pops it under the blanket, throws it over, and they come in. They go, oh, look, he must be asleep. Pull it back, and it's an idol. That's a good trick. If you're a 15-year-old trying to tell your mom you're in. But what's more interesting is this. They had an idol in the bedroom. You see, there is even a danger of synchronistic thinking that I can serve God, love Jesus, but I can do these little things. I've got no idols. Well, maybe I've got this little idol, but I still love Jesus. Maybe I've got this. Oh, yes, sometimes. It's about priority, isn't it? That sometimes in our own life of who we are, We steal little things that become more important to us than God himself. We hide them in the confines and the privacy of our lives. They create snares for us. We think they're just nice ornaments of who we are, but they become idols and they detract us from the pure image of God, which is Jesus. Now, I don't know what idols you've got. I know I've had to pull down some idols in my own life. Human nature creates idols. I love the film Castaway. Don't you love that film? With Tom Hanks, some of you give me a thumbs up there. And he ends up, he's a, a kind of mad uh, workaholic. Name is Chuck, who is, receives, you know, uh, his, his affirmation and his wonder from life from the amount of, of, of money he earns and flying all the way around the world for FedEx. And he ends up in a plane crash. He ends up on a deserted island, caught by a reef. And what happens? He, he, he ends up talking and spending all of his time talking to a Wilson volleyball. It's fantastic. There it is. And he cuts his hand. He goes, ouch, puts it on the volleyball and then talks to Wilson because he's got to replace his obsessive behavior from being a workaholic and not bothering with the woman he loved and flying around the world and always leaving Christmas events and Thanksgiving early because he can't help himself. He ends up on an island and what does he end up doing? Talking to a volleyball. 
human nature. But I love the end of the film at that moment. He gets away from the reef. Wilson floats off. And he looks up. And there is a massive tanker ship above him. That moment in film, that makes me want to cry. Because sometimes we hold on to our little blown up volleyballs that we think are so important when God's tanker turns up. With all his riches, with all his rescue, with the size of a mountain turns up in the ocean and God's love reached down to us in our little shipwrecked lives and says, why do you trust these little things when you've got me, the eternal God, and I love you? You see, the word image is derived from the verb which means to hew or to hew into shape. These are used to denote idols made in the likeness of man. When we look at our own lives, the question this commandment begs is this, what are you shaping in your own life? What are you hewing, what are you making that detracts you from your devotion to Jesus Christ? When you look at your own lives, what are you shaping into them? What values, what drives you, what cuts to the heart of who we are? J.K. Chesterton, I love his writing. When people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. And the danger is, is that when we take Christ out of the equation of our lives and we put other things in place, we start to believe in anything. Now, we say that this one commandment will never break. And I guess you're Canadians. I'm, I'm English. We don't find ourselves... Before graven images and carved stone, do we? I love Alberta and Saskatchewan. You know how much I love these places. They're amazing. You go to little towns and they have big graven things. I went to one little Saskatchewan town and they had the largest stone gopher in the whole of Saskatchewan. About this high. But I didn't go to that little Saskatchewan town and see people bowing down and putting food and dressing up the gopher and dancing around, at least not while I was there, although rumours do tell me about Saskatchewan people. But um, only joking. So what about our idols? Well, I want to explain this. The danger is this. That the workshop of the mind is the place where idols are created in the 21st century. Some of the most powerful idols exist where? In our minds. Human understanding is the workshop of where idols are continually being crafted. What you think about. What people live for, money, sex, possessions, career, holidays, sports, music, relationships, almost anything, hockey. I didn't mean to say that, okay? 
What we put first above everything else. What we put first above the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. You see, I love my father-in-law. He's no longer with us. He's with the Lord. He died, I guess, about six years ago now. He was an avid Wolves supporter. You may not know the Wolves. Wolverhampton, they're a mag- it was a magnificent football team, still is there, the Wolves. And he used to go to the Wolves every week to watch them play. He loved them. But if they lost, he would go by bus in his youth when he was a young married man. And if they lost, and Michelle's mum would listen on the radio that she knew that they weren't going out that night if they lost. They'd go out if they'd won. And if they lost, he would leave the stadium and walk, come rain, shine, sleet or snow. He would walk 12 miles home that night because he was so mad that the wolves had lost. Now that's something you can't do in Manitoba in the winter. If your hockey team loses, true? Uh, You might suggest that the Wolves, that soccer team, was a god in his life. And you would be right. Took over everything. He even had a trial as a young football player for another football team, which would have given him a good income. But because it was another football team, he didn't bother going because he only loved the Wolves. And they didn't want him, but he loved them. But you see, the most dangerous idols are actually good things that have been twisted. Lots of good things. Lots of good things. Idols offer the possibility to men and women of making their own controllable God one they can deal with on their terms. Household gods hidden away. Little ornaments, metaphorically, in our lives. Stolen, maybe even from our parents, like Leah and Rachel. And hiding them because we want them and we hold on to them. Listen, if Solomon, the wisest man, can fall into idolatry, then we ought to be very careful about how we apply our lives. In fact, this commandment is about how we love God and how we put him first. Those idols are those that tempt us away from the exclusive bond that we can have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we've got to be willing to do. Okay, I don't want this to be negative. Because some of the things that we can have as idols in our lives can be good things. But we've put them first above the Lord Jesus Christ. When the first Christians came to Europe and came to the British Isles and they started planting churches, which always confused people, but they did this. They planted and built churches on the sites of pagan worship centers. And that may seem like a strange thing to do, but they planted a flag in the ground where once they worshipped the gods of the pagan, Druid gods and so and so forth. They planted in the ground and building a place of worship in that pagan place. 
that calls us to worship God in that place where idols once were worshipped, we now worship the true and living God in that place. Now that may seem strange, but I think that can help us. You see, people, let's think about things that people do worship as idols in their lives. Creation. People, their body. The power that we have, the possessions we have, idol of sex. There can be a whole range of different idols that can, can come into our lives. For example, creation, of course, is magnificent and wonderful and glorious. And yet so many people focus on creation as a point of worship and becomes the main focus. I love my wife, Michelle, but she would think me a very strange person if I paid more attention to her reflection than to her, the real thing. Oh, you look amazing in the mirror. Just stand there and let me just look at the mirror. Look at your reflection there. And creation... Is a reflection of the vastness and the abundance of God's glory. So it's not about allowing creation to be number one. It's about planting a flag in the middle of creation and saying, I worship God because God is the God of goodness and creation. Your body. Well, where the body becomes obsessive, we can become insecure. We can battle. Body image can become an idol. Making yourself an idol. But you see, we need to turn that around, plant a flag and say, listen, God has given me life. God has given me breath. God has given me health. I don't want to treat my body as an idol, but I want to treat my health and the way I treat myself and the exercise and the food, not as an idol. I want to live properly out of a sense that I want to honor God with the whole of my life. Power. God's placed you in the marketplace. God's given you that business. God's given you that opportunity. You've got influence. The truth is this. The power of influence is not there for your own glory and your own power. God has called you to be a kingdom person in the marketplace and in your job and in your situation. And plant the flag and say, I will glorify the kingdom of God in the place where I have influence and power. And I give back the power to God and I honor him in my vocation in business and commerce. Think about it that way. Your resources of what you have. Your possessions. Our modern day temples are our massive shopping malls. But we have to say, I plant the flag and I worship God about the way that I spend my money. I worship God about the generosity, the way I give. I worship God about the way I recycle. I worship God about how I can bless others with the much that I've been given. And I always put God first with my possessions. They will not be an idol in my life. Sex, divine, glorious gift from God for humanity in a covenant relationship, we can celebrate the gift of sex as a gift from God within a covenant relationship. And rather than it obsessing us and compelling us and enslaving us, we can plant the flag and say, you know, God gave us this gift and to, 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 as a sign of closeness and intimacy between man and woman. And I plant the flag and I want to approach it with a Selfless, loving, 
caring, giving way. I plant the flag on the pagan temple and I build the kingdom of God. Idolatry is as satisfying, my friends, as trying to drink salt water. You're thirsty every day. See, the truth is we become like the things we worship. And this enslaves us. If we worship God, we become like the one we worship. The radiant image of Christ. So how does he reveal himself to us then? How does he do this? Well, it's the joy of his voice tears down the idols of our heart. Think about this. The voice. He did not reveal himself in physical form, rather only as a tangible manifestation of God was his voice and his fire. Because the people saw no shape, but only heard God's words. They were not to make images in the shape of any idol. God makes himself known through his voice, not through any physical form. You see the scripture here, where it talks. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. And when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my word so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire and you heard the sound of the words but saw no form. There was only voice. He declared to you his covenant, ten commandments, which he commanded you to follow, then wrote them on the two stone tablets. Look at that scripture there. As it talks, the voice, you heard the sound of his word, but saw no form. There was only his voice. God does not want us to have idols in our lives. What God wants at the core of who we are as believers is the voice of his spirit speaking to you. And when the voice of the spirit speaks to your heart, I'll tell you what, you don't want idols anymore. You want the reality of God's presence in your life. That's what it says. Wow. It actually says more. Fire, voice, and stone. Well, come on. You don't need to be theologians to work out what pulls down idols in our lives. The fire of the Holy Spirit, the voice of God in our life, and the word of God, the scripture, the stone that we follow. This brings down idols. Live right. When you do not have the voice at the center of your life, when you do not have the word at the heart of your life, and when you do not have the Spirit's fire, we shape and we mold idols in our lives. Scripture finishes with a warning, my friends. 
talks about that if you create idols in your home, then judgment will come to your family from one generation to another. True, that's what it says. How do we get round this? Well, I think it's this, and I want to talk to you. It's about creating the right atmosphere. What Exodus 25 teaches us is not that children are punished for the sins of their parents, but that idolatrous parents create the atmosphere in their families that encourages their children and even later generations also to be idolatrous. In other words, mom, dad, what you put first in your home will shape the way that your children grow up. So don't put any idols in front of them. Put the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Set the right tone. One generation sets the spiritual tone for the next generation so that perhaps the second commandment is based on a universal truth about family relationships. We are covenant people. And the way that we live out our faith and live out towards God in our home can create problems or can create blessings. The principle here is a covenant with God. Holds family, God holds families responsible for their conduct, conduct as families. The Israelites were in covenant with God. And he held them responsible when they started lighting candles and putting images of other gods in their wallet. And having a little look at this doesn't work. We need the voice. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. I was fishing with my son, Josiah. He's doing really well. We're in a lovely canoe. And he was sat at the front and he was, he was I've got it on, on, on video, he was taking, we were fishing for jacks, pikes. And he was taking it and he was, whew, and he was throwing the lure in the air. He was like, whew, it's brilliant. And he was wheeling it in and he was catching jacks. And I was there enjoying the sun. It was gorgeous. It was on a lovely, beautiful, flat Saskatchewan lake. And I had my Oakleys on. And I had them up and it was Oakleys that one of my best friends had bought me as a present. Great, and, and I was watching him doing this, and dad was in the boat, and dad was feeling pretty relaxed and feeling pretty comfortable, and dad decided to move around a bit, and dad decided to stand up in the canoe for a moment, and as he stood up in the canoe, the boy went, woo, and I went, wah, and I, I fell overboard. And I went, as I started to travel down through the water, I kind of got right, and my first thought was, Where's Josiah? I tipped him up. What's happening? And I came up out the water and I looked and there he was. He hadn't noticed that I'd fallen in. (laughs) And I shouted, Josiah! And he looked and said, Dad, what are you doing in the water? I said, "I, I took my eyes off you and I fell in. Dad's. Your home, 
This is what this is about. Take your eyes off the Lord and you fall in the water. And you look around and think, how did I get here? You took your eyes off number one. 